You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 23 is where we'll be this morning. We had concluded last week with uh, the sacrifice of Isaac and God's interaction with Abraham affirming um, his obedience to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. We talked about how God's promises had empowered uh, Abraham to be obedient, that all across that journey to offer Isaac, he was relying upon the promises of God, that Isaac was the promised son, that if necessary, God was going to raise Isaac back from the dead. So a lot of promises that motivated Abraham to obedience. But then we also saw last week that a believer's obedience invokes God's active favor and blessing in his life. Um, that God responds to Abraham's obedience and communicates further blessing, reiterates blessing to Abraham. We said that that in no way assures us of any type of material blessing, but simply God's favor and blessing upon our life as we respond to him in obedience. Um, we said that our level of obedience correlates with uh, our level of belief, that Abraham obviously had a... Um, uh, a huge amount of faith in God's promises, which allowed him to sacrifice the thing that was most precious to him. And then we said last week as well that our proper love for things makes us a good recipient to receive things from God. That because Abraham uh, was clutching the things that God had given to him very lightly, was willing to let go and release those things, that God wants to then give him more things, that he's the type of steward that God feels like he can give blessings to. Um, and then we said that there's always an afterward to God's test, um, that we see that affirmation that came from God um, as an afterward, as a, as a post-test for, Ab- uh, for Abraham, God communicating affirmation to him for his obedience. Um, and so that brings us to Genesis chapter 23 today. We don't know exactly how much time lapses between 22 and 23, but I told you that I feel like this chapter is important for us not to skip over. The whole chapter deals with the death of Sarah and the burial of Sarah. Um, And like I said, several commentators skip right over this and go straight to Genesis chapter 24. But I believe 23 is really important. If for no other reason, because Abraham's descendants are so intentional about bringing their bodies back to the same place where Sarah's buried. Um, that the, the coming descendants that we're going to talk about, Isaac and Jacob and his wives, uh, they want to be buried here as well for significant reasons, I believe, that we're going to talk about today. And so I think we would do a disservice to the text if we simply skipped over this chapter that deals with death and burial, two topics that we don't readily want to discuss, topics that we don't want to readily think about. Um, But I hope to show you today why these topics are important and how they can glorify God if we devote time and attention to them. So I'm going to give you our summary sentence for today to get us started, to help us see the purpose and the the urgency, I believe, behind the text today, uh, why we are going to devote time and attention to it. The time of death, when the natural inclination is to mourn as the world mourns, should be the time of our greatest demonstration of faith. For the recipient of God's promises has a hope beyond the grave. The time of death, when the natural inclination is to mourn as the world mourns, should be the time of our greatest demonstration of faith. For the recipient of God's promises has a hope beyond 
the grave. What we have here is a man, Abraham, a great man of faith who has lost his wife. And it's in the midst of this that we begin to, uh, or we continue to really see Abraham's faith in God's promises. And he continues to put that faith on display, even in the midst of being faced with death. As you're writing that summary sentence down, we're going to go to the text and read through this chapter. It says in Genesis 23, verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. And entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let let, uh, him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land. But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me, between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Mechpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Mechpelah, East of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Some introductory thoughts to, uh, to introduce the text to us this morning. First of all, Sarah dies 62 years after leaving Ur. So she's 127 years old when she dies. That's 62 years after her and Abraham leave their home. Okay, so she spends... Almost half of her life living in tents in the promised land. Okay, so she spent 62 years uh, in the promised land uh, wandering with her husband. She lives a total of 127 years. Abraham will live 38 years longer. So Abraham still has several decades ahead of him that he'll actually live. Isaac is 37 years old when Sarah dies. And he'll actually get married three years after her death. So Sarah does not live long enough to see his wedding. Um, Interestingly, she's the only woman in Scripture to have her age at death recorded. Um, So while we we see men listed oftentimes with how old they were when they died, um, it's as though Scripture 
understands that a woman doesn't always want her age communicated, and so takes that into account. The authors of Scripture only record Sarah's death at her age. She's obviously the first Hebrew to die. Um, When we think of Abraham and Sarah being the mother and the father of the Hebrew nation, she's the first to die. In this text, we also see the first piece of Hebrew property. This is the first actual ownership possession of a piece of land in the promised land. And then, as I stated earlier this morning, this is the first account of mourning in Scripture. Now, it's obviously not the first death. It's not the first time that somebody actually cried. But in Scripture, in uh, the recordings of Genesis, this is the first time that we're confronted with an individual mourning over a situation. Um, and so I think there's some things to learn from that as well, as we've talked about. Anytime we encounter a first, there's probably something that can be learned about the, the standard or the pattern of what that should look like moving forward. So um, just some, some uh, years to get you thinking as far as who's still alive, who's going to live uh, beyond Sarah's death. Um, but also letting us be reminded that as God's building this nation, we really begin to see kind of the, the beginnings of that. This is the first time the Hebrew people will actually own property um, and not just be sojourners and foreigners in the promised land. We begin this chapter looking at Sarah's death. Uh, Sarah's death. And, and what we see here is that God's people will suffer loss in the midst of promise. Abraham's not exempt um, From tragedy. He's not exempt from sadness. In no way did God promise that he would be exempt from the effects of sin. Abraham is confronted with the choices of his forefather, Adam and Eve, and um, has to experience the effects of sin here. So he does suffer loss, even though he is in the midst of God's promises, um, he's confronted with a personal loss. Um, And what we see is that Abraham is faithful to weep over his loss, right? It says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. We skip to verse 3, and Abraham uh, rose up from before his death, or sorry, verse 2. Sarah died at Kiriath Arba in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Abraham's faithful to weep over his loss. In no way are we to walk away uh, from some of the things that the New Testament say that we're not to mourn as as others mourn, in no way does that uh, prohibit us from the appropriate mourning and weeping over death. We ought to weep over death. Um, death is an attack upon God's creation. Uh, death is a result of sin. It's a result of the lies that Satan told in the Garden of Eden. And so there ought to be weeping. There ought to be sadness when we're exposed to death. It's a reminder that the curse is not yet fully reversed. Right. Death is a reminder to us that there's still more to come. Right. We've experienced the first coming of Jesus. Jesus has come to set us free from sin. He is at work within our lives. He is redeeming us. He is saving us. He is reversing the curse. Uh, But it's not fully been enacted yet. Um, There are still things to come. And and every time we're faced with death and and I know at some point we're going to be faced with death here at our church. Right. We're going to be touched by death at some point. If, if God, uh, if Jesus continues to tarry and doesn't return and this church continues to move forward, at some point our church will be touched with death. Um, and there will be weeping and sadness, and there ought to be, um, because it's a reminder to us that Jesus has not yet come back. Because when Jesus does come back, that final enemy, death, will be defeated. Um, he's defeated it through his resurrection, and he will readily continue to defeat it. And when he returns, death will be destroyed. We will be resurrected 
and there will be no more crying, no more weeping when we're with him for eternity. But until then, it's a reminder that we are waiting yet for the curse to be completely reversed. As Christians, we do sorrow differently during times of death, though. And so while it is appropriate and right uh, for us to be grieved over death, we do it in a different way. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 reminds us, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So so Paul draws upon our belief in the resurrection. We gather on Sunday mornings because we believe in the resurrection. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul says because we believe that as Christians... Our handling of death, our handling of funerals, our handle of burials should be drastically different than those who have no hope. That we have a strong belief that when Jesus comes back, he is bringing with him believers that have gone before us. And so if we tarry until Jesus returns, we will see Christ coming and he will not be coming alone. He will be coming with believers that have gone before us and their bodies will be raised to life. And so we grieve, we mourn, we're sad over death. But we do so in a way with answers to questions that a lost person doesn't have. A lost person has no guarantee as to whether they will see this individual again or not. They don't have a belief system that tells them or explains to them whether they will see their loved one again or not. Or they may have some perverted or distorted system that's not grounded in anything that's true. As a believer, as a Christian, we have revelation from God that it's not the last time we will see this individual that we will be restored to that individual in the future. And so we grieve differently. And I believe Abraham grieved as a Christian would grieve. He's exposed to death. He mourns and weeps. But in verse 3 it says, Abraham rose up from before his dead, and then he goes to work to bury her. And so while he's grieving and weeping over the loss, I think secondly we can make the point that Abraham is faithful not to despair over his loss. He's faithful not to despair over his loss. He doesn't allow his sadness over his wife to drive him to a state of depression and despair. Right? He's he's got a hope in the promises of God. And we're going to see that even how he handles her burial, he has a strong belief in what God's going to do in the future. Everything that he does, he is dead set on her being buried in the promised land. Why? Because he understands and believes that God has told him this land will be for your descendants. He tells Abraham, you're not going to see it in your lifetime, but your descendants will inherit this land. And it's an eternal inheritance. And so there's this idea that Hebrews tells us that he's looking to a city that doesn't have foundations. He's looking to a future city. But he understands that there's a promise tied to the land as well. And so he says, I will bury my wife here. I will bury my wife in the promised land. He's faithful not to despair over his loss. He, he goes to work and in, in working to bury her, he's thinking about the promises of God. As Christians for us today, we possess strength and comfort in times of distress as well. We have an eternal hope that helps us endure. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, We can have the same type of hope that Abraham had, that what we see is not final. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That reminder to us that we're to be looking to the future, we're to be looking to eternal things. That as Christians, we are being renewed on the inside, even though every day we are closer to our death. Our bodies break down. Our bodies are on a one-way crash course collision with death. But on the inside, the Holy Spirit is renewing us day by day. And we have this hope and encouragement that Christ will come again and restore us to glorified bodies. And so we have encouragement as Christians in the same way that Abraham had encouragement. As Christians, the finality of death is removed. So even as we attend funerals uh, of believers, we understand that what we are doing, we are not saying final goodbyes, right? Mark chapter 12, verse 26 it's simply a, uh, a temporary separation for us. In Mark chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus is addressing the Sadducees. Um, and the big difference between a Sadducee and a Pharisee is that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not allow for a resurrection. It says in Mark chapter 12, verse 18, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. So Jesus is addressing an audience that doesn't believe in the resurrection. And so in verse uh, 26, he says, and as far as and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. So Jesus is communicating that when when God identifies himself with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not identifying himself with dead people. He's identifying himself with people that continue to live, continue to live in the presence of God, and will continue to live for all eternity. Um, And so Jesus addressing someone who doesn't believe in a resurrection and gives them full proof that there is a resurrection, that people continue to live after their funerals. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ wins that victory over death so that the sting of death is removed for a believer. Um, It's not final for us. When we attend Christian funerals, it's not the last time that we will see this individual. And it is not the last time that we will see this body. Um, This body will be raised. Um, And there's good proof from the resurrection of Christ that our bodies will possess a continuity uh, in the future to what we have right now. That there will be recognizable traits about us in our glorified state. And so it's not the last time that we'll even see the body that we lay to rest at a funeral. So Sarah dies here in Genesis chapter 23. And I think Abraham gives us an appropriate picture of Uh, both how to grieve and how to weep as a Christian, Um, that there is an appropriate response. We should be grieved and we should be sad over death, that it's not uh, not how it's supposed to be. And Christ is going to come and make it how it's supposed to be. Um, But he also gives us a picture of what it looks like to get up out of that mourning state and to move forward based on the promises of God. Because again, what drives him in his negotiations with the Hittites is the belief that Sarah needs to be buried here. Now, if Abraham didn't have hope of resurrection or didn't have hope of a future, it really honestly wouldn't matter where where Sarah was. He could burn her into ashes and he could scatter those ashes wherever her favorite place was on the earth and be done with it. 
But he is very intentional, very intentional in his negotiations to put her in a resting place based on the promises that he's clinging to that God has given to him. So with Sarah's uh, death, we now move to Sarah's burial. We said that in death, God's people will suffer loss in the midst of promise. Here we say that God's people demonstrate faith by reconciling death with promises that extend beyond this life. God's people demonstrate faith by reconciling death with promises that extend beyond this life. All right, we said there at the very beginning that when we're faced with death as believers, it should be our time of greatest faith. We should demonstrate our faith to the fullest in the midst of death um, because God's promises extend beyond the grave, right? So the way that a Christian handles death and particularly the way that a Christian handles burial, I think ought to communicate something to those that will experience it, those that will come to a funeral. The way that a Christian's burial is handled, I believe, ought to point to the promises that that individual believed in. Um, And I believe that strongly. I believe that Abraham communicates that in the way that he handles Sarah's body. It says that he rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He comes to the Hittites and he has a desire to bury Sarah in the promised land. It's probably worth noting that Abraham opts not to return to Sarah's home to bury her with her family. Remember, in Genesis 22, we just learned about the family, right? Abraham and Sarah are related, so they're married, but they were related before marriage. So Abraham's family is also Sarah's family. Remember, Nahor, Abraham's uh, brother, has a lot of kids. So there's a lot of family still back home. Most of the time when we think about being buried, we think about being buried near family members, right? A lot of times when when we visit gravesides of of family members, oftentimes they're not the only family member buried in that cemetery. It would have been very logical for Abraham to say, let's take Sarah home, right? Like we've been gone for 62 years. We've been on an adventure. We've been following God and trusting in his promises. Now it's time to go home. Right? Like we're old, we're, we're stricken in age, like we're at the end of life. It, it's time to go home. It's time to go home and be with family and friends, and it's time to bury my wife. Um, Hebrews says that had he had an earthly mentality, he would have opted to do that. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 15, says, um, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But, that, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. So the author of Hebrews talking about the fact that Abraham did have the opportunity to go home. He could have easily opted to go home and bury Sarah. But I believe Abraham believes that Hebron, where she died, is the most appropriate place for her to be remembered by future descendants. He wants his descendants to remember Sarah, and when they come to, to pay respects or come to remember her, he wants them to come here, not where they came from. He wants them to come here where he believes they are going to inherit this land. So he's tying her location to the land promises. Abraham's plans to purchase a family burial site in the land of Canaan demonstrates his resolve 
to remain in God's promises. This is once again a sign that Abraham's not wavering about what God plans to do. I mean, he's, he's in the midst of loss here, right? Like they've had one child together. This could be easily be a time of doubting once again for Abraham to say, God's really not fulfilling this stuff like I thought he was going to. It's, it's let's go home. Let me go bury my wife back home where, where the family members can help and assist in that process. Um, but instead, this is another demonstration that he is not wavering in his faith, and he plans to bury her where God has promised to give his family the land. I think it's also important to note that he faithfully communicated promises in such a way that his descendants wanted to be buried here as well. So he goes through this process with the Hittites. On the back side of this, though, after this all plays out and they bury Sarah, it's important to note that Abraham believed this was so important that he also told his children about it. He told Isaac about it. And it wasn't just a passing story, apparently, that he told Isaac. He told Isaac, when I die, I want to be buried here. When you die, you ought to be buried here. And you need to pass this down to your children. Look what happens. And this is the evidence of the fact that Abraham really felt strongly about his burial here in the promised land. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 9, I'm just going to give you a, a burial report here of where people were laid to rest. Um, Genesis 25, verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There, Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. It was important to him. and His, his boys understood that, right? Um, and, and so they carried through with his, his wishes to be buried here next to his wife. But it continues in um, chapter 35 of Genesis. Verse 27. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So there in Hebron, he's buried, and we learn here in chapter 49 exactly that he's buried, exactly where Abraham and Sarah were. Um, but it's not just him. In Genesis 49, verse 29, Uh, then he commanded them and said to them, talking about, um, this is Jacob. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers. Where? In the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hiftite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from the Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, where uh, in it where uh, were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Jacob says, I want to be buried where the rest of my family is buried. You read into Genesis chapter 50. Joseph fell on his father's face. This is when they're down in Egypt, wept over him, kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, 
My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb, that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. He goes on to give instructions about how Joseph gained permission to go and to bury Jacob in the same place where Abraham and Sarah were laid to rest. You skip down to verse 22, Joseph. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. You skip to 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. All right? Then there's 430 years of, of bondage to Egypt, right? And then finally Moses shows up, and Moses is ready to rescue. And it's in Exodus chapter 13, as they're about to leave Egypt and head to the promised land, that Joseph pops up again. All right? He's been dead for 400 years. Verse 19. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. All right, I don't know how this got passed down for 400 years. Like, this would have been an easy oversight. Like, we're gathering all our stuff. We're heading out. Oh, did somebody grab Joseph? Like, you know, they're in conversation midway out, going to get the Ten Commandments, and, oh, man, we've been thinking about it for 400 years, and we forgot. No, like this was this was heavy. Like this has been passed down and passed down and passed down. Like these weren't people that were still living when Joseph made these these desires known. And so somebody grabs him and takes him. And then think about this. For decades, these people wander in the wilderness, right? They don't get to go straight to the promised land. They could have. It was available to them, but they don't have faith. They're scared. And so they wander. Think about whoever had the responsibility of carrying this dead guy around the whole time right? It's not fun wandering in a wilderness, right? It's, it's probably hot and, and there's not a lot of water, right? Because they're always looking for water. And you're the guy that's tasked to carry the dead body of Joseph around for decades. And the whole reason is, is because he really wants to be buried next to his mom and his dad. And it's like, why? Why is this so important? Like he could have been buried in a, in a, in a nice uh, tomb in Egypt, right? Like he was, he was beloved in Egypt, right? The Egyptians mourned for him for 70 days, he could have been entombed in a place where, where archaeology maybe would discover him today. But no, he said, I want to go back. I want to go back to the promised land. And I don't think it's so much about a location as it is about a promise. And I think Joseph was very intentional about saying, I want this body, I want in the midst of death, the promises that I believed in to ring true for however long it takes for me to end up back there with my family. And it wasn't just about being buried next to family. I believe it was being buried in the promised land where God had made promises to his people. So for years they carry him around and it's in Joshua 24 when they finally lay him to rest. But I'm going to speculate here for just a second. Um, and I'm telling you I'm speculating so you don't have to, to believe this. But in Numbers chapter 13, verse 21, it's talking about the spies. So there, there's 12 spies that are spent, sent into Canaan. Ten were bad, two were good. Okay, um, They're looking around trying to determine if the Israelites can take this or not. It says in verse 21, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Labo, ha, uh, Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. 
Ahiman, Shishay, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. They came to the valley of Eshkel and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. They carried it on a pole between two of them. They also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkel because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Then they get back and they give their report. The ten say, we can't take it. Place is scary. People are big. Let's don't go in there. Joshua and Caleb were like, no, this is our land. Let's go. And I'm going to speculate here because it says they go through Hebron. And I wonder if Joshua and Caleb had the opportunity to stop by the tomb of Abraham and Sarah. Right? Because they know where they're supposed to go to bury Joseph, right? So it's not too far-fetched to think that, that they may have known where to go in Hebron to see the burial place of their people. And I don't know that it did not invigorate their belief in the promises because they come back fired up. We can take this. We can take this. We can take this. And I think it would be a cool thing if it, it was partly motivated because they saw where their, their descendants were buried. And they believed the same promises as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Again, I don't know that they visited the place. We definitely know they went through that area. We know they're carrying Joseph. And they know they're going to bury him there when they get there. So it's not too far-fetched to think that maybe part of the reason they're so fired up is they come by the burial spots of these family members. And their promised believing is invigorated when they see, hey, granddaddy believed we would be here. We're here. Let's take it. Let's come into the promised land. Let's secure it. Abraham desires to buy Sarah, uh, bury Sarah in the promised land. Secondly, she desi- he desires to procure a permanent land for her burial. So we go back to the text in Genesis chapter 23. He has the conversation here with the Hittites. Um, he rose up from before his dead, said to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. As a, as a stranger to the area, um, Abraham has to gain special permission to purchase land. He can't just come in and purchase land as a foreigner. He has to get special permission from the local people to actually purchase land. Um, and so that's what he's doing here. He's starting negotiations. He's wanting to get permission. He wants his ancestors buried here for years to come. Okay, so he's looking for not just Sarah's burial place, but for his and for his children. So he wants to secure a permanent location for this to be the case. Abraham could have married into the land, and he wouldn't have needed this special permission. In Genesis 34, it's a really weird passage with um, Jacob's children who want to get uh, get back at some boys that were messing with their sisters, and they get them circumcised, and then they go in and kill them all, and but when they come back, they say, hey, there's these foreigners. They want to, to marry in with us, and we're going to give them land because of it. They're going to give us stuff. And so part of the negotiation was they're going to marry into our people group, and that's going to grant them land. And so there was some discussion about the benefits of such a relationship. Think about it. Abraham's got Isaac, who doesn't have a wife. So one of the easiest solutions could have been, Isaac, let's find you a wife. Let's marry somebody that's got land. This is how we'll bury, uh, bury your mom. But we know that Abraham wants nothing to do with the, the sinful tendencies of the people. So he, he doesn't go that route. Instead, he tries to gain special permission to bury her. Um, first of all, Abraham is granted permission to bury. It says in verse 5, the Hittites had great respect for him. It says, they answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. So the, the first... Um, 
the first thought here is that we're just going to give you one of our tombs. Okay, we're just going to gift it to you. Feel free to bury her there. There's some, there's some humility here in how Abraham approaches these people that I think is an example to us. He places himself at the bottom of the social ladder. He calls himself a foreigner and a sojourner. The locals elevate him to the top, though. They talk about him being a prince among God. Um, and so they obviously know his character and value him greatly. Um, but he comes in and he doesn't really expect favors and he doesn't act superior and he doesn't make demands based on God's promises, right? He doesn't come in here and say, hey, I know I'm a foreigner here, but just so you know, God's given me all this anyway, so tell me where I can bury my wife. No, he comes in and wants to handle it the legal way. He wants to get permission to do it as a foreigner, and then he's going to carry out proper negotiations in the city gate. Remember, that's where Lot served in Sodom, the city gate. We talked about that being kind of where all the business was done. That's where he's going. He's going and doing it the right way, Um, and he's granted permission to bury, so they're not opposed to the idea of the foreigner burying his dead there in their uh, in their land um, but secondly abram is granted permission to purchase um, he he follows up with this opportunity to to just take somebody's tomb and and he wants to go further with it because he wants something permanent not just a hey bury sarah here he's thinking bigger i want to be buried here i want my children to be buried here and so he goes further with it um Abraham rose in verse 7 and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar, that he may give me the cave of Mechpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. Right? So he, he seemingly is picking a place that would not put somebody out. He says, you know, it's at the back. It's not going to really affect anything. You would still own the field. You'd still be able to do all the agriculture that you're doing right now. I want to bury in the very back where you're not really using it. So again, a sign of humility. He's not making demands. Um, And he doesn't want a free gift. Uh, You know, Ephron supposedly comes out here and says, you know, you can just have it. I'm going to give you the cave and the field. Um, Says, um, Abraham says, for the full price, I want to do it. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. And Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. I don't know if it was me, I would have been jumping at this opportunity. You know, like in in short sightedness, I would say, wow, this has really worked out great. Like I thought I was going to pay a lot of money for this, but these guys like me um, and they're actually going to give it to me. And they're actually going to give me more than I thought I was going to be able to get out of this. But Abraham's very intentional, I think, for a specific reason. I think he wants to ensure that ownership cannot be disputed later. Okay? Like he could easily bury Sarah here, but what would prohibit them from saying, we gave it to you, we died, our kids aren't willing to let you bury anybody else back there. So that's great you buried Sarah back there. We liked your, we liked your, um, your grandfather. Uh, you know, but Jacob, you can't bury anybody there because we gifted that to him, but now it's changed hands and no more land being given to you. I think he really wants to make sure this is permanent. And so he kind of fires back and says, no, 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 no. Like, I don't want it given to me. I want to pay the full price for it. Um, and so Ephraim spouts out a price for it. He says, what's 400 shekels of silver between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephraim and Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver that he named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight's current, among the merchants. So Abraham wants to purchase it at full price. He wants no deals. Uh, He wants to purchase in the sight of witnesses, so there's no disputes. 
He wants to ensure everything is right and fair. Listen to some of the details that are contained in this chapter that makes this uh, uncontestable, right? Like there's, there's nobody that can dispute the ownership here. Um, the negotiations take place at the city gate. Moses is really clear to list that out for us. It's in the legal center for all to see. We also see that Ephron enters the negotiations without being prompted by his peers. So Abraham says, I would like to talk to Ephron. I'd like to talk about getting his land. And Ephron steps forward. You don't have a group of people saying, Ephron, just do it. Just give him some land. Don't be stingy. No. On his own accord, he steps up and says, yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about my land. Um, Ephron states the price and the value, right? Like, he's the one that, it's not Abraham not saying, I'll give you 400 shekels of silver for this, right? Ephron's the one that names the price. That helps make sure that it's done right and fair because this isn't something that could be disputed later as though Abraham swindled and dealed and and got a uh, an unfair price for this ephron's the one that suggests it uh, and abram doesn't negotiate or dispute it right abraham doesn't counter offer this would have been normal in their society let me give you a price now you counter i'll counter back and eventually we'll settle on something abraham says if that's how much you want for it that's how much i'll give you there's dispute among commentators as to whether he got a great deal or whether he got completely ripped off um, a lot of people think he got completely ripped off but again Rather than negotiate to where it can be disputed later, he says, if that's what you want, that's how much you're going to get. Moses goes to great care as well to talk about how the payment was made according to the local weights. It says, according to the weights current among the merchants. And then the agreement and the transaction details are recorded in detail, um, all the way down to the trees that are included in the field. So it's a, it's a very legal section of this chapter that really lies out in details This is what he purchased. This is how much it cost. And everybody was in agreement that it was the right thing. And this is where he buried Sarah. Um, And I believe he demonstrated a lot of faith in how he buried her. And so I wanted to kind of use that as a, a springboard to get us thinking about our own burials and our own futures. Because I think there's a lot to learn from this, right? I think he sets a great example for how to weep and mourn when we're faced with death that it's appropriate for a Christian to cry. It's appropriate for a Christian to be saddened when faced with death. It's also appropriate for a Christian to get out of that state and to cling to promises that God has made that would give us hope about the future. See, Abraham, I don't think, believes that Sarah's done with, right? He's very intentional to bury her in the promised land because he believes in God's promises for the future. Um, And so I think that too sets an example for us. We weep for those that die, but the promises of God pull us out of what could be a, a long state of despair and depression. God's promises pulls us back to reality and says, okay, it was appropriate, but there's a future. There's a future that's coming, and that's not the last time that we'll see that individual. Um, and so while, while obviously Abraham is thinking in terms of the promised land, and while I do believe that there's a lot of evidence in the New Testament that the church and Israel have been blended together and, and whatnot. I don't think that that means that all of us need to be paying the exorbitant prices it would take to ship our bodies to the promised land and bury them over there um, to follow suit with Abraham. But I do want to, to at least get you thinking in terms that in death, we declare our hope. And I do believe that we ought to bury with thoughts of communicating our faith in the resurrection. Okay, so I believe as we think through how we're going to die and what's going to happen to our body, that we ought to think in terms of 
in my death, at my funeral, I want to declare the hope that I believed in. And I want my family members to see the hope that I believe in. And so I believe we ought to bury with the thoughts of communicating our faith in the resurrection. Because of that, I think there should be great care for our bodies. How we bury should reflect something about the future we hope in. I shared with you earlier, I do believe there's going to be continuity in who we were and who we will be in the resurrection. Meaning, I don't think that we should just view our bodies as something that we're done with. Right? It's not uncommon to hear people talk about or even say, I don't really care what's going to happen to my funeral because I'm not going to be there anyways. So, you know, whatever you guys want to do is fine. I'm not going to be there. And I think sometimes we move into an unhealthy state where we disconnect ourselves so much from our physical bodies that we forget our bodies have a future, right? When we talk about people being in a better place that die, right? Like they've, they've gone on before us, they're with Jesus. They are not in their eternal state. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think that, that grandma and grandpa are in heaven and, and that's where they'll be forever and, and they're in eternity and we're just waiting to get there with them. People in eternity, Scripture says, are waiting to come back and be reunited with their bodies, that they are not content being separated from their bodies. So when we talk about at a funeral, you know, we see grandma laying there, and and it's not uncommon to hear somebody say, that's not grandma, grandma's with Jesus. There's truth to that, but we should not minimize the value of the body to whoever we're having that conversation with. The conversation should not simply be, that's not grandma, grandma's with Jesus. It should be, grandma's soul is with Jesus, but do you see that body right there? That body is coming back to life one day. Jesus is coming back and grandma is going to have that body. And remember the last time we saw grandma when she was in the hospital and she was beaten down with that disease and she was in pain and agony. Grandma's going to get that body back and it's not going to have that disease anymore. And she's going to be restored to her original beauty and health. And she's going to carry on in a glorified body for all eternity. And we're going to be able to enjoy grandma just like we used to, but without all the pain and agony that she was feeling. That's how that conversation should go. Not, yeah, grandma's done with that. Like, grandma's done with that body. Grandma's with Jesus. We're going to get rid of that, and we'll never see that body again after this funeral. No, like, we are going to see that body again. And I think the way that we handle that burial ought to communicate to people the great value that Christ has placed upon the body of a human being, that Christ is coming back to unite us with our bodies. Um, The New Testament pictures us as asleep, right? The New Testament talks about us being asleep and being awakened when Jesus comes back. So the New Testament continues to talk about our bodies and our bodies being restored to our souls. Um, The body has eternal importance. There should be dignity shown in how we bury. Um, The burial certainly should communicate a future that death isn't the end of this body. Instead, it's almost as though it's being planted, that we're putting it into the ground to be once again restored and to grow Uh, and to show fruit when Christ returns. Um, It's probably important to note here, so we we had some discussion earlier, and hopefully it was fruitful for you, uh, cremation versus burial, okay? Um, What's what's really important is that, obviously, Scripture, I don't believe, gives clear guidance one way or the other. And when it comes down to it, cremated bodies will be resurrected, okay? So at the end of the day, somebody chooses to be cremated, um, it's going to be resurrected, And the bodies that we put in the ground are going to, unless Jesus comes back sooner rather than later, will end up in the same type of state as a cremated body, right? We've all heard the argument that 
well, the body is going to end up looking just like the cremated body anyways. So both of those true, those things are true, right? Cremated bodies are going to be resurrected, so nobody's going to make a mistake and get cremated and then find out, oh, man, Jesus didn't want us to do that. I don't get my body back. Like everybody that buried gets their bodies. Everybody that cremated, we just kind of wander around in a stole state for the rest of our life. That's not the case. And at the end of the day, the bodies that we bury are going to turn into dust, right? Like that's what was told to Adam, that you came from dust, you're going to go back to dust. But I do think it's worth considering when we evaluate the two, I hope that we, we can think bigger than just which, what's cheaper, right? Like a lot of times the argument is cremation is cheaper, right? Cremation is cheaper, so that's what I'm going to go with, right? I, I've had that conversation. I've even thought along those lines, okay, that this one's the cheaper one, so I'm going to take this route. Going back to our summary sentence, in death, we ought to be able to communicate our greatest demonstration of faith in how we handle our burial. That there's hope that this isn't the end of me. See, I want people that come to my funeral to believe that this isn't the end of me. And that I didn't believe it was the end of me. And that one day this body is going to be restored to my soul. Um, I think that can be done with both. Um, I think cremation and burial both can communicate that as far as, um, I think, how the body is actually handled in the midst of either way. I do think there's something potentially uh, gospel-esque in burying a body versus cremating a body simply for the fact that I think it's easier to communicate that we don't believe this is the last time we'll see this body because we're giving people one last chance to see it before we put it in the ground. Now, obviously, that's not possible in all deaths and burials. Um, And in fact, there have been plenty of people that have been burned at the stake throughout history that did not have the option to pick, right? They were were cremated against their will. Um, I do think if given the option, though, we ought to think through, whether it's burial or cremation, how can I point people to the hope that I have in the most clear way possible? I do think in, in making the choice for cremation, I do believe that there is a beautiful picture in keeping those remains together so that there is a physical place that somebody can go to and be reminded of you and the future that you have, right? So a lot of times people cremate and then those ashes are dispersed. And once again, people that have been cremated and their, their ashes have been dispersed, they will be reunited, okay? But one thing that we do in our family is we take our kids to family members' graves that we believe are believers at Easter time. And we go and we talk about the resurrection, but not just about Jesus' resurrection. And so we visit the tombs of our family members and we say, we're expecting these people to come out of here one day. And we can take our kids to physical locations and say, this is where Granny and Granddaddy lay. This is where Granny Griffin lays. And one day they're going to come out of here. And they're going to be resurrected, and they're going to be reunited with their souls. And so I think, again, you can spread yourself out on the beach. You can spread yourself out on your favorite football field, um, as some people have chosen to do as well, and you'll be resurrected on that day. But it's hard for somebody to go and to look at the beach and say, wow, we can't wait for so-and-so to come back because we're not really sure where so-and-so is right now. Like their body is all over the place here. To be able to go to a tangible place, just like Abraham and Sarah had a physical place, to be able to go to a place and say, I'm looking forward to the day when that body comes out. Um, I think that's a beautiful picture of the gospel and the hope. And so I think cremation or burial, I think, I think there's probably 
um, an easier picture through burial than cremation, but it doesn't discount the fact that someone could be cremated and still push a lot of people towards glory and God in their burial. But I think keeping the remains together, I think is probably important because I do think that helps communicate we're not just done with this. Like, we don't just scatter it and say, good riddance, like, I'm in a better place. There's this mindset that, no, I'm coming back for this. Keep it together because I'm coming back. I'm going to need that when Jesus comes back. And so keep it together for me. Um, so just some thoughts. And then um, this came from uh, Ligonier Ministries. It says, anthropologists have tracked the spread of Christianity westward across Europe through history by looking to the spread of cemeteries. Christianity came to dominate a given region at that time that cemeteries came into use. I thought that was interesting, that as you see Christianity spread from Israel uh, in Jerusalem, right, Acts 2, begins to spread across Europe, that anthropologists, secular anthropologists, have been able to determine when Christianity really got established and began to dominate a region because cemeteries began to spring up. So even that ties the roots of burial and just the the honoring of the body a lot of times to christianity the fact that the early christians believed in a bodily resurrection wanted to preserve that hope for future generations to be able to see where those bodies were buried and to anticipate their return from the ground to life implications for our futures and we'll kind of wrap up with this god's promises are not exhausted in this lifetime that's such an encouragement to us today Hebrews eleven thirteen talks about these great people of faith, but it also talks about how they did not get everything in this life. It says, um, Hebrews eleven thirteen, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I think that's true for us until Jesus comes back as well. That, God gives us promises. We enjoy a lot of his promises here. But until Jesus comes back, if we die before that, we didn't get everything. We didn't get an environment that's free from sin and death. We're still waiting for it, and we'll wait for it in death. Our souls will be with him. Our bodies will wait here. So we, too, may fall into this category that we lived as exiles on this earth. We didn't receive all the promises, but we will one day when Jesus comes back. So God's promises are not exhausted in this lifetime. There's still much hope for a believer who dies before the return of Jesus. And then secondly, when faced with death, we should always have our minds drawn to the eternal. We should always have our minds drawn to the eternal. Luke ten twenty, Jesus talks about the, the fact that we should rejoice that our names are written in heaven. Um, that's, a, that's a big assurance for us when we face death, that we do have our names secure in heaven in the Lamb's book of life, that um, our names are written there, and it assures us of a future beyond the death that we experience here. So application thought, um, again, not to be morbid, but... In preparation for your own death, how will you plan to point others to the eternal hope you possess through the way you are buried? Okay, so I do want you to think through this, especially for our married couples and, and those who are, are already kind of thinking through wills and getting those written. Um, this is a point that a lot of times has to be written into a will. What, what do you want to happen when you die? And so I would encourage you to think beyond what's financially doable to think beyond what's the cheapest way to do things 
um, and to think in terms of the eternal. What do I want done with me when I'm not here, when my soul's not here? What do I want done with me that will ensure that people that come to put me to rest understand the promises that I believed in? What can I do with my body, whether I cremate it or whether I bury it? Where am I going to lay it to rest where people that come after me, my kids and my grandkids, can come and potentially visit the spot where I'm laid to rest and can hopefully anticipate the day when they are reunited with me or get to meet me, right? We, we take AJ and Abram and Maggie and Jack to, to people's graves that they never met. And we, we have a great time telling them stories about these people, about their great-grandparents and, and, and talking and hopefully building the anticipation of one day being able to have them meet those people. And so I think we should desire that as well, to leave ourselves in a place that will constantly point people to the fact that there's a hope that I'm coming out of this state one day, that when Jesus comes back, my body comes to life. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you and praise you for this chapter. Um, we thank you for the great care that Abraham put to burying Sarah. We thank you for the example that he sets for us, that as a man of faith, it's totally appropriate to grieve and to weep over death. That we don't have to uh, convince ourselves that because you're good and sovereign, that it means we should never shed a tear. That we ought to weep in the face of death. Um, in the same way that you weeped over the death of Lazarus. Um, that death does bring weeping because it's a, a separation that was not meant to be. And it's simply an effect of sin um, and our rebellion. And so, God, we are thankful that you are reversing that, that you have sent Jesus to save us from that. And so, Father, we rejoice over that today. Um, but, God, the reality is, is that unless you come back, uh, all of us in this room will, will be buried one day and we'll, we'll have a funeral one day. And, God, I see such encouragement through how Abraham handled the burial of Sarah and how it pointed so much to the promises that he was believing about you and the future that you had promised for he and his descendants. And so, God, I do pray that you would challenge all of us to examine how our burials could be very similar, how we could point people to you and the promises that you've made, the future that we know is secure, that you're coming back and our bodies are coming out. And, uh, God, I pray that you would allow us to, uh, to think through how to, how to have that play out in a funeral setting that would point people to that belief. Um, that people would be encouraged by the promises we believed in and would potentially be drawn to believe in those same promises if they aren't already. Um, so God, I pray that we'd be diligent to think through how we can glorify you in life and in death. Um, God, I'd love for our deaths here at Sovereign Hope to be our greatest demonstrations of faith, um, to be able to celebrate what you have done in the lives of people and be able to anticipate the joy of being reunited with those people one day as well. Give us the diligence to think through those things in the coming weeks, the coming year. Um, whenever it is, God, I pray that we'd be diligent to make sure that our death glorifies you to the fullest. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sobhope.org. Thank you.